Hello, food enthusiasts, and welcome to another episode of the Future Foodcast. I'm Pam Miller, your host for today, and we have a really interesting guest with us. I think you're going to love his perspective on all things food. His name is Brian Quokley, PhD, and he's a food scientist and a food industry consultant. He's also the author of 150 Food Science Questions Answered. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Happy to hear it. Be here, Pam. (laughs) Well, we hope that you can answer some questions for us today because being a food scientist is a really interesting line of work. And you've done several things within that. But what are you doing right now with your background? Yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm serving as a consultant. Um, I'm helping a lot of people and uh, entrepreneurs and startups in the plant-based space, in the cellular agricultural space. Um, and, and really just kind of, I'm really fascinated and interested in flavors and the design of, you know, foods and like, how can you eat, create foods that are really, you know, really going to be something that people crave and desire? Because, you know, at the end of the day, we all have to eat, but we like to eat what we love to eat. Um, but at the same time, something that, you know, helps the environment, helps, you know, people become healthier and that sort of thing. So that that's a real technical challenge that really fascinates me. Yeah, well, that is a lot of, those are a lot of goals to have all at one time, Brian. And I know you're working a lot in the plant-based food space and really finding the taste profile there is a challenge, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's what I'm hearing. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the, the history of humans and foods, it, is really fascinating because, you know, we've actually evolved mostly to eat meat because that's just the easiest way to get your calories. And so like every compound that's produced when you take meat and you throw it on the grill, you throw it on a fire because, you know, we invented fire so long ago, you know, we're just so adapted to experiencing those particular flavor compounds at like the most minute level right? Like we can tell the difference uh, because that's, that's what, you know, our ancestors ate. So when you take something like a plant-based material and you're trying to incorporate it into our diet, you know, a lot of plants are designed, but from an evolutionary perspective to, uh, you know, be taste bitter to, you know, have toxins, have poisons, you know, most of the plants in the world are not very difficult, very difficult to eat and have a lot of fiber, have a lot of cellulose. Um, And so the challenge has always been, how do you take a material like that and, 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 and transform it into something that is very similar to, you know, something that is like muscle and tissue and blood and that, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes for sure. Well, when you break it down into muscle and tissue and blood, it sounds like it doesn't sound nearly as appealing. I mean, meat doesn't sound nearly as appealing. I'm looking to eat the plants when you kind of <laughs> give it to me in the individual parts. So right. I'm not as excited, not as excited to eat meat moving forward. But um, so you have, do you break the compounds down? Is that part of, explain to me what you do as a food scientist. Yeah. So, you know, because, you know, I I actually work mostly remotely with a lot of the companies that um, are my clients. And really what I do is, you know, they'll give me sort of their formulation. I'll break it down, kind of see, you know, what's possible as far as if you take two components or multiple components or ingredients and, you know, what's going to happen as far as when you sear it, when you, you know, when you heat it up, when you bake it, when you cook it, where are sort of the chemical, you know, processes that are involved and, you know, which ones are going to really make a difference when you're talking about something like taste or when you're talking about aroma and flavor. Um, and and the, the, the chemistry is really complex because there's so many compounds that can be produced 
And really only a, a good number of them, like maybe a handful of them, 100, 200, so on, so far, really make the difference. And trying to get all the compounds that you can only find in plants to react in the same way as something that's in meat, you know, that's, you're talking about really just dissecting the, you know, really analytically like this compound. And you don't really need a whole lot. That's the surprising bit is that it's just enough to really hit some receptor in your nose or in your mouth that's like yeah i love it right and there's so much that goes and in, goes into that well it's interesting too because in all the plant-based foods that are being produced the protein alternatives like meat substitutes we we are trying to because what i hear is you're trying to simulate what we already eat because we're pretty much creatures of habit aren't we I mean, right. you go for something we're familiar with. Right, right. Absolutely. And it, it's worked really well for us. You know, we've survived, millions, you know, millions of years, you know, doing what we do. And uh, it, it's entrenched, right? Just yeah. genetically, biologically. Um, and a lot of it is also memory, right? You know, what you ate as a kid uh, really dictates a lot of what you eat as an adult, mostly because, you know, the psychology is there, but also your, your gut microbiome is there. You know, what is in your stomach, the bacteria that live there, they, they do a lot to prod around and, you know, they release neurotransmitters and say like, this is great, you know? So whatever you have in there, they're going to keep wanting to eat. Right. So. Okay. So uh, really our body is working in that direction in a positive way. When we give it the plant compounds it's saying, Hey, we know about these, or we we've had these things before. That's exactly. really, that is so interesting. Exactly. How did you even get started in this plant-based space? Like, what did oh, you man. do that led you into this? I just think yeah. it's, it's interesting. Obviously it's a big trend. Uh, I think it used to be more of a fad, but now it's definitely a trend. Wouldn't you say we are, we are. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's so many countries and different cultures that are trying to introduce more plant-based meat. Um, you know, some of them intrinsically, you know, I, I think of, you know, randomly like Serbia, they, they actually don't eat very much meat as a European country. And so they, they, you know, Nestle is starting to build, uh, I think actually has already built a plant-based, uh, meat production facility over there. Um, and you know, so there's different cultures that kind of crop out and you don't realize that, you know, plant-based eating is, has been around just as long as meat eating. So, um, but for me, as far as how I got into the space, so I, it's a bit of a convoluted journey, so I'll shorten it up a bit. But um, after college, I was I was a little lost and uh, didn't really know what to do. So I, I actually ended up uh, walking across the country for about 2,000 miles, uh, sort of like a refresher. Um, and through that whole experience and journey, I, you know, I was putting on as many calories as I possibly could because you're burning up four or 5,000 calories per day walking 20 miles. And um yeah. And I, every grocery store I went to, I was like, you know, the selection is so minimal here in the United States. And I, I was so surprised by that. By the time I finished my journey, I just thought, you know, the future is food. I, I really have to get into this space. So after kind of bouncing around, you know, considering becoming a, a chemist, considering becoming a, a teacher, uh, there's a lot of different occupations I kind of dabbled into. I eventually settled on getting a PhD in food science. And that was a real, it's been a slog. <laughs> it's been a five-year slog. And at the end, COVID hit and, you know, I, <laughs> I, I was graduating in the middle of the pandemic and that was a fascinating experience. And I, I think along that, there's so many issues with food and climate, um, and so many issues with you know how we produce um, the food that we do. 
you know, at the time I was studying, um, I was actually studying plant-based compounds that have healthful benefits to you, um, specifically in garlic and onion. And I just, there's actually a lot of intersection between the flavors that we love and also what's good for us. I was like, oh, this is a really interesting way for me to use that knowledge. You know, I started contacting plant-based and southern agricultural um, companies. And I just thought, you know, I'm here, I'm available, you know, I'm remote because of COVID. <laughs> so let's, let's see what happens. And, you know, from there, it's been, it's been a fabulous journey. I just, it's been great. Well, that is really cool. I know that, that now you're definitely have moved on from onions and garlic. I'm, I'm sure that's part of what you're doing now, but it sounds like you did a lot of work with them and, and are expanding into lots of other things in, with your mm-hmm. consultancy, different mm-hmm. You're working with what other kinds of things uh, are you investigating or is going on in the plant-based space that you might be involved with? Yeah, I, you know, the, one of the things that's really fascinated me, and I think that's it's mostly because I, I live now in the, the Pacific Northwest, is is mushrooms and uh, fungi actually, because you know a lot of the a lot of the things that we waste um, or you know you end up landfilling because of uh, you know that's not edible for humans or you know it's has food safety concerns. Um, a lot of that can be consumed by fungi, and you know we, we've eaten fungi for a while too. You know mushrooms are a big part of our diet. We we've used yeast for you know thousands and thousands of years to brew beer, and there's a whole lot of you know technology there that that sort of has a huge potential to be used as sort of the next you know kind of food source essentially. Because you know we 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 throw millions and millions of tons of material that you know is completely inaccessible to humans but like i said you know fungi can consume they can you know reuse and 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 eventually become biomass that we can consume and i think you know there's there's a few startup companies that are involved in that and i think that you know that's potentially the future as well wow fungi i so they all right let's just break this down no pun intended <laughs> so there's there's food I wouldn't call it waste necessarily, but it's the excess that we can't really consume in the form that it's currently in. And -hmm. you're saying that some of that can be repurposed essentially and utilized by fungi Mm -hmm. and be made into edible or consumable uh, food products. Is that right? Absolutely. That's right. That's right. Okay. That's it. All right. Can you, can you package that so that I don't know that what's in there? And then I'll, and then I'll just, I mean, you have a consumer issue with, you can't really tell people all that's happened to get that where it is. We do want traceability and transparency in our supply chain for our food. But then when it comes to fungi, I mean, people have a a wall up against that sometimes. I love mushrooms, but this is a thought process. It's really cool and very sustainable, Brian, really. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the challenges is that, like you said, you know, especially in Western culture, we don't really have as much of a experience with fungi. I know in, uh, you know, East Asia, they you know, they love fungi. They're, you know, China is one of the largest producers of, of mushrooms, uh, but they also use a lot of molds and they use a lot of, you know, edible other uh, microorganisms. Um, but it's, it's something that's also uh, something that has to be introduced into Western culture. Um, one of the most, um, the most famous form of, you know, alternative meat 
that's that's a fungi is is corn which is spelled q-u-o-r-n and that's in the uk um, they produced it back in the 80s um they were developing it because there is sort of fear of a protein shortage and it and it just became you know it's perfect because it has the texture of meat um, it's edible it doesn't produce toxins um they spend years developing it and, and it's a commercial product you know and to me that's that's perfect because you you can feed it pretty much whatever you want <laughs> You know, as long as it's broken down, edible source, um, you know, even if we humans can't eat it, as long as it's safe for us to, you know, consume, um, I think that's that, that, that to me is, you know, what we're probably going to be eating uh, in the next 20, 30 years. That is so interesting. So interesting. All right. So everybody stay tuned for the latest in fungi coming to you soon. Uh, but Brian, I did want to ask you, a couple things about your book, 150 Food Science Questions Answered. What were a question or two? What were your most fun or interesting questions that you answered or, or some that you get asked a lot that, that our audience might be interested in knowing about? Yeah, I think the the biggest one that, you know, is kind of near and dear to my heart is is the concept of umami. Like, what is umami? Like, why do we care about it? And, you know, it's a, it's sort of a buzzword that gets passed around. But really what it is, is it's, it's just like sweet, sour, salt. It's, you know, one of the basic tastes. And essentially, it's our ability to taste amino acids, uh, specifically glutamic acid and aspartic acid. And, you know, proteins have tons of these amino acids. Essentially, it's... It's, it's it's your ability to recognize that and, and it's been around for you know almost 500 million years like sharks had it right like their ability to detect these amino acids is, is just sort of core to you know being alive essentially as a mammal or as a fish or a reptile and um you know at the end of the day that's that's what drives us to eat a lot of our protein sources and i think that the ability to to recognize umami and to control it and to you know use it to our advantage is is probably core to the whole um experience of creating alternative proteins is you know what is it what does it mean to be eating meat is is part of that and it's something that we've just been naturally selected for yeah well i learned something new today umami i've never even heard the word before thank you for sharing that with me brian i am smarter for having been with you today <laughs> that's for sure do you have another moment you'd like to share with us by any chance yeah yeah absolutely um the you know this came from my you know my research and my phd which is like why why do onions make you cry right and it's um, that was actually it took it took researchers a while to figure this one out but it's 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 a it's a cascade of different processes so like onions they contain this amino acid and as you can see I'm, I'm really big on amino acids it's an amino acid called cysteine sulfoxide um it's not one that's common in in living beings it's mostly just producing species of allium so garlic onion chives and so on and so forth but these cysteine sulfoxides when you cut or rupture the cells of an onion um they get released and they react with another uh with an enzyme that the onion produces and that generates a compound called sulfenic acid. The sulfenic acid is what's responsible for the flavor of onions and garlic. But the onion has one additional enzyme that converts the sulfenic acid into what they call a uh, lacrimatory factor, basically what makes you cry. And that's really volatile and it really it stings, it hurts. And it's designed specifically so that the onion can protect itself, right? And it's so funny because, you know, all these different processes and, you know, these biochemistries, you know, eventually end up being, you know, we just, we like the flavor of onion, right? Like, and it's because it has this amino acid. 
so you know we're, we're able to tolerate the sting of, of of an onion but actually onions are toxic to most most mammals so uh you know you feed it to a dog or a cat or you know if a bird pecks at it it's it's a it's actually you know uh a poison um but you know we humans were like hey this is great <laughs> well i didn't know that either i do know that i cry when i cut onions and my oldest daughter really cries when she cut onions much more sensitive than i am and i bought her i bought her onion goggles if, if you're listening to the podcast and not watching, you know, like swim goggles that you put on and they were onion goggles and they were bright pink. And honestly, I think it's the best gift I ever got her. I think she appreciates, she still has them and it's 10 years later and she loves them and she wears them every time she cuts onions. I was, <laughs> I was cutting the other day, onions the other day. I don't know if I'm getting more sensitive to them or if it was just the kind of onion, but I, I just had more of a reaction than normal. And I had the thought in the back of my head it's funny that you talked about this today i need to buy some onion goggles so that I, <laughs> or maybe put on some swim goggles for anybody at home that's a swimmer probably they would help do the same thing just seal that eye stock a little bit so it doesn't get irritated that's thanks perfect. for sharing those fun facts with us brian you're really interesting amino acids are important and i guess our body resonating with them and really recognizing them is really an important mm -hmm. facet of the science work that you're doing to try to help with alternative proteins, right? With the plants. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, most of all flavor eventually comes from amino acids and, you know, like things that taste meaty, that taste sweet, bake, you know, the, the taste of baked bread, like all that actually originates from reactions that amino acids have with sugars, with, you know, uh, ribonucleotides, with fats. I mean, there's, it's, there's so much variety there's so much possibility and it's it's also it's very mind-boggling but at the same time you know we have all these amazing tools um we have you know computer software we have programming we have machine learning and you can use those um to to really break down and dissect a lot of these processes i think the disconnect is you can't teach a machine what tastes good right you know you, at the end of the day you gotta have a human at the end you know trying everything. And, and I think that's really, that's a challenge. And it's a, it's also makes it very human, right? Like that's the, that's the art of these things is, you know, you have chemical names and you have ideas and you have theories, but at the end of the day, it's someone sitting down and having a meal with their family and you got to capture that. And if you can capture that, I think that's the, that's the biggest market value possible. The experience of food, really. We exactly, we, yeah. It, it's a cultural thing across the world. Mm -hmm. People gather around food. They share mm -hmm. friendships and relationships around food. We celebrate around food. So yep. it's a big, it's a big deal. Well, thanks for your work that you're doing to try to give us some options in the world <laughs> and um, help us also continue to be more sustainable. But I, I know you also have an eye for the future of food and where we might look next. I mean, we, we do have limited resources here. And what do you think, you know, what do you think about some of the future of food and what might be happening there? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're talking about, you know, sort of the, the next century, as far as the future of food, it's, I think the biggest thing is, I talk about amino acids, I talk about proteins, and they came, they come from somewhere, right? And, you know, a lot of it is from plants, you know, metabolizing nitrogen, right? And and that's, I think, is the sort of linchpin. And we had this sort of um, agricultural revolution when um, uh, a Nobel laureate named Fritz Haber, um, he was a chemist, he was able to develop a technology to convert 
um, atmospheric nitrogen into uh, ammonia, which is, is a fertilizer. It allows plants to actually utilize nitrogen. Otherwise they can't, you know, our atmosphere is made up 70% of nitrogen, um, but it's completely inaccessible. You know, the only times that plants can use it is, you know, either bacteria has to like force it into um, the molecules or, you know, lightning strikes. Like that's about the two options here on earth. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, water is of course critical, but after you have all the water in the world, you still need nitrogen. And that's, that's what we need, you know, as, as far as that, that becomes a nutrient that's critical, um, for the development of, you know, literally everything from muscle to brain tissue to, you know, so on and so forth. So when we talk about the future, you're talking about how do you get enough nitrogen so that everyone can eat, right? I think we're good on sugar. We're good on carbohydrates. Like we have a problem with carbohydrates in fact right so but you know it how much more nitrogen can we get um you know in the world and i think that requires so many fields so many sub-disciplines so much scientific you know knowledge um and technology but also you know it, it also requires policy it requires um you know understanding of the intimate relationship that we have with you know our resources the ecosystem and then if you if you really you know project out in the future what do we do when we're in space like nothing there's very few things that produce nitrogen out there right you we have everything that we need here on earth but if you take it out into space what we're the ones who are going to be responsible for that that sort of production and every little bit counts and every little bit needs to be recycled and we don't do that here on earth and i think that's that's one of the challenges is that at the end of the day it all goes to the ocean it's almost impossible to recover that. So we need systems to sort of bring back the nitrogen, get it back into the soil and not just nitrogen, but minerals, um, you know, metals, you know, very small nutrients, micronutrients that, you know, we just keep extracting over and over again. And it's costly. And we can see the, we can see the challenges now today with, you know, the, Ukraine Russian war where you know we don't have access to those fertilizers those nutrients those minerals um and it drives up the price and as we you know continue to drive up the prices people are going to be less and less able to 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 eat um and purchase food at a at a you know reasonable cost um so i think that that's the next step is figuring out ways to sustainably close the loop um and that that's going to require a lot uh, more than just technology, it's going to require people working together and, and policies to really make and make that work. Yeah, well, thanks for that. I know that it's it's nice that technology keeps investigating, innovating, and finding new ways and better processes and all of that. So hopefully, that whole nitrogen as the linchpin problem maybe we'll we'll get that solved in another fifty years or. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seems speed up, so it might be faster. Well, Absolutely. We've covered lots of really fun stuff. You're you're a really uh, amicable food scientist, I must say. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate that. Very fun fun to talk to. Uh, Is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience before we go today? Yeah, I think. um, Wow, I mean, it's it's been a crazy, you know, it's been crazy last couple of years, and I think um, I think the food industry is so fascinating. I'm so glad that there are people who are passionate and interested in the space, and I think there's just going to be more and more people. And you know, unfortunately, I think your traditional, you know, college curriculum, your traditional educational curriculum doesn't really put a lot of emphasis on it, you know, and when you think food scientists, you think, you know, 
some people think nutritionists, some people think, you know, agricultural technologists. And, and really, we, we sit in a, in a really interesting and uh, fascinating subdiscipline because we have to combine all sorts of different yeah, chemistry, biology, um, you know, biotechnology, uh, a little bit of engineering. Um, thrown in. And it's, um, I think that's really fascinating and exciting, especially because it has to do with people. We all have to eat at the end of the day. And I love that. Well, maybe there are going to be some future food scientists who listen to this podcast and think, hey, what he d- is doing sounds really interesting to me. And hopefully you've sparked some interest for somebody to investigate the field because we surely do need more smart people that are passionate like you are working in this field. I really appreciate you being with us on the Future Foodcast today, Brian. Thank you, Pam. I also appreciate being here today. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcast. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 